Hey Icon, Pastor Josh here. I am excited to continue in Romans 8 and our Roman series. And some of the things we're talking about today are really good but weighty. Really wonderful but really weighty as well. And so I really want to ask that the Spirit of God would help us as we dive into some of these hard topics. And so let's let's pray and then we'll jump into it. Father, I thank you for the ways that you are attentive to the actual situation of our lives that are lived in a fallen world. God, I thank you that that you see, you take notice of our suffering, and you are so kind to give us in your word and in the gospel such rich hope. And so I pray that today, Father, as we look at this text in Romans 8, that there would be a real sense of fresh hope in our souls, that we would feel known and seen as we talk about some of the experience of suffering a little bit, but also that we would feel compelled forward in the hope that we've been given in the gospel. Father, I know that those types of things cannot be accomplished through words. My words can't do it. No level of attentiveness in my listeners can do it. We need your spirit to do it. And so would you, by your spirit, perform this miracle of grace and give us hope, give us expectancy, even joy in the midst of suffering. So I thank you that you see us now. Father, would you minister to us by your spirit? We entrust this time to you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are picking back up in Romans 8. Uh, If you remember last week, we talked a lot about what it means to be adopted into the family of God, that we have a a father who we can cry to, and because of that, we want to let loose some of the things that we feel inwardly. And if you remember, when we we ended the text last last week, we we saw that Paul ends it talking about this inheritance that's been given to us, but but, uh, it's coming in the future, but right now we are in the realm where suffering happens. Suffering happens in this world. And so today, as he kind of makes a shift here in the chapter, he's going to kind of lean into some of that suffering. And I think it's such an important question and an important topic for us to address. Because here's the reality. All of us, you live long enough and you will encounter real, heart-wrenching suffering. That, 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 that phone call is coming. That, that diagnosis that's bleak may be yours. That relationship that feels, that means so much to you is vulnerable to tear and division. Suffering in this world is a common thing. And I almost feel as, as your pastor, part of my job is just to, to help you prepare for that. To help you prepare to, to suffer well. Because it's going to happen. And the good news is, and what we're going to see today, is that, 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 that when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you are given a certain level of hope that is unlike anything else. That, that the gospel actually gives you some things. Actually gives you some things to make it through suffering. Not, not just the type of grit your teeth getting through but actual hope, even as the New Testament talks about joy, joy in the midst of suffering. Can you imagine that? In all of the trials that you have gone through or that even you're fearful of, can you imagine that in the middle of it, not on the end of it, but in the middle of it, being able to be joyful, 
Can you imagine what relief that would bring into your life? And so today we're, we're going to talk about suffering, but not just suffering. Because if, if you'll see there in verse 18, let me read it because it really sets up the rest of this section. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Okay, so Paul starts off this shift in his chapter, and he begins to really kind of lean into suffering. But he doesn't just acknowledge suffering. He talks about some glory that's coming, but's not here yet. And this is kind of the, the thesis statement of the rest of this section all the way verse through verse 30. And you, if you had to summarize it, it's Paul basically just saying, we are suffering. Glory is coming, which means right now we wait. We are suffering, it is happening, it will happen, and it will continue to happen, but there is glory coming. There's something coming that's going to make this suffering seem minimal, minuscule in comparison. But that's not ours yet, which means right now we are waiting. And that's what I want to lean into as we run through the rest of this text, is this idea of of waiting. And I think Paul gives us really kind of three categories in the the waiting category. And so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at, one, how Paul frames the experience of waiting. What is that like? How Paul gives us the, the strength to wait. How do we actually get through it? How does it not crush us? And then number three, what is the end of our waiting? What is some of, some of that glory that we can really look forward to? And so first, let's talk about the experience of waiting. Look at the text with me. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And so the first way that Paul begins to kind of frame up this idea of the experience of waiting is first by looking at creation uh, uh, really on a cosmic scale. And like a lot of other biblical authors, Paul kind of personifies the creation and shows it to to be in this category of of groaning. And he says that it's been subjected to futility by God. That at the fall of mankind, when, when we sinned against God in that garden, it did not just implode the human heart, which it certainly did, but it also reverberated throughout creation. To where now creation is stuck in this futility and under this futility it is groaning. And so we have things like global pandemics because creation is groaning. We have wildfires and hurricanes that destroy cities and towns because creation is groaning. Honeybees go on the brink of extinction because creation is is groaning. It's almost as if creation remembers what it was like before the fall, and it longs to be redeemed. That it it, it remembers, it was a witness to what God said in Genesis 1, as he created everything, and then he spoke over this, this blessing of it. It is good. It's like creation 
remembers that and that phrase has been ringing in its ears ever since and it longs to be back to that place but it's not so there's this this groaning this upset nature in nature and Paul compares some of this this groaning to to, to, to childbirth to the pains of of childbirth which means this that the groaning and the pain it's not meaningless it's not purposeless but it's actually heading and proceeding something beautiful and here we see that the groanings of creation what what they're proceeding is what paul calls the the freedom of the glory of the children of god that the release of our world and of our universe that sits under the subjection of futility that release will not happen until there is this this freedom of the glory of the children of God. And again, that that connects back to the reason why the whole creation is under futility in the first place. Because we, the chief creation, the, the primal creation of God, image bearers, have sinned against him and introduced sin into the world. And so whenever we have some level of redemption and come out of that by God's grace at the end, that's when creation itself will be set free. That's when creation will be redeemed. And so God, it says here that he subjected creation to futility at the moment that we subjected ourselves to the tyranny of sin. But all of this was what? Done in hope. The hope of the freedom of the children of God. And that's, that's, that's where it taps into some of our experience of waiting. Because Paul kind of goes in. Because, you know, like we can relate to the creation, I guess, in that groaning. But it's a little bit different for us. Look at, look at verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So Paul moves away from the experience of waiting that even the material world is experiencing and moves into the experience that believers are having. But he uses that same category, right? Of groaning. But instead of groaning expressing itself in earthquakes and volcanoes, instead he says that it happens from the inward places. That there's something in us that's groaning as believers. That our sighs are heard from the soul. That's the experience of believers in this waiting, is groaning. And why does Paul say that we groan? Why is it even there? Look at what he says. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly because we have been given the Spirit of God. And I'm not just talking about the, the general groaning of living under a fallen and broken world that everyone experiences. No, it's an inward groaning where you know this is not how it should be. And this is why it's connected to having the Spirit of God. It's not just coincidental that you have the Spirit of God and you groan as a believer, but it's actually causal. We groan inwardly because we have the Spirit of God who, who shows us and teaches us what life lived, united to Jesus Christ, is supposed to look like. More than that, the Spirit as we read the word, shows us what society was supposed to be like, what this world was supposed to be like, what God's intention for it was. He's giving us this inner testimony as he's teaching us 
And then we look out at the world. We look out at our real lives. We look out at society and we see that those things do not match. That what the Spirit of God is prompting in me to, to long for, even for my own personal walk with the Lord, what life lived united to Jesus is supposed to look like. As he bears witness in my inward spirit about that, and then I look out at my real life, I see that they don't match. In fact, they often seem at odds. Hence, groaning. Irritation. Because the Spirit is, is, is teaching you, showing you, this is what life is supposed to be like. This is what God set this whole thing up to be. But here we are, with a, with a body that's still tended towards sin, with a society that still unravels itself in selfishness, with a world still subjected to futility. So we as believers, we, we groan inwardly, but we don't groan hopelessly. What does he say? We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. For the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So our hope that we remember even in this groaning is that the hope of a redeemed body and a fully realized sonship. That's what Paul gives here, that, that we groan, but we groan as we wait for the redemption of our bodies. The redemption of this body that is still so prone to sin and temptation to anger and addiction, to, to anxiety and depression. We've talked about this all throughout Romans 8, this, this flesh that's still bent away towards God, that God's going to redeem that one day. That's, that's some of the hope that gets us through. And then also a, a fully realized sonship, which ladies, that's, that's not speaking to anything around gender. Paul is just kind of leaning into some of the cultural currents of that day that the, the son had this primary place in the family and he's saying that all men and women who are in Jesus have that place of, of sonship. That, that, are, that even as we talked about last week, we, we have been adopted. We do have sonship, but it's not fully realized. Here is what Paul says. Yes, we've been adopted. We have the guarantee of sonship, but not yet its full experience and expression. And so we're, we're groaning. We're ready for that. We want it. It's, it's like our, our sonship is like what C.S. Lewis said, that, 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 that it is the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. That's the experience of waiting, is that we, we groan. We groan under the suffering in our present lives, whether that suffering is outward or inward. Whether that suffering is the, the tragedy of a lost loved one or even the suffering of still having to fight against this sin again. We groan. We groan and we wait eagerly. We look forward to the day in which our bodies are no longer in any way tempted by sin, led, pulled, compelled towards sin. And the day that our sonship, so much of what we explored last week, is fully realized. And our place in the family is seen and stamped forever. Experienced forever. 
So we groan. That's what the experience of waiting is that Paul lays out. But more than that, he goes, he goes a little bit further and talks about some of the, the strength to wait. Because if that's all we had, <laughs> that sounds pretty terrible. That we just have the experience of waiting and we just groan. No, but we have, we have the strength to wait as well. And Paul leans into this category of, of hope. Of why our hope can give us strength to wait. Listen to this in verse 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So here Paul begins to unpack one way in which we are strengthened to wait, which is this, the sure nature of our hope. That we believe the future God has promised us is going to come true. And just as anything else that we hope for, its, its end goal, its final fruition is yet to be materialized. But, but in this hope, this unique hope of the gospel, we are strengthened to wait with, with patience even. That's how sure it is. You can only wait for something with patience if you have all the confidence in the world that it's going to happen. And the believer in Jesus Christ is able to have all the confidence in the world that God will do what he said he's going to do with us, in us, and for us. That he's committed himself to, to materializing the hope that he himself has given us. I mean, listen, listen to this in Hebrews 6, 17 through 20. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus himself has gone on as a forerunner on our behalf. Unchangeable character of his purpose, guaranteed with an oath, impossible for God to lie, a hope that enters into the inner places of the throne room of God. This is the hope that Christians have. This is the hope we have. This is how sure it is. And what's amazing to me about that text in Hebrews 6 is that it's clear that, that God did all of these things. So what, for, for what reason? So that we would have strong encouragement. Not because it actually gave more validity to his promise. He didn't, do, he didn't guarantee it with an oath because that somehow looped him in all the more to actually have to do it one day. He's God. He's going to do what he said he's going to do. But in order that we might have strong encouragement, in order that we who have fled for refuge might have sure hope, God doubles down. God doubles down. He ties himself to his own promise, so much so that if he was to not do what he said he's going to do for us as Christians, he would, be, he would cease to be God himself. He would be lying. And as we saw from that text, it's impossible for God to lie. So Christians have this, this sure hope, and God desires us to have this strong encouragement. That, that gives us strength to wait, that the hope we have, the end in which our lives will go, 
is sure and true. And because of that, we have the strength to wait for it, even with what Paul says, patience. But not only that, not only do, does the sure nature of our hope strengthen us to wait, but the very Spirit of God himself does. Look at, look at verses 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So our hope is secure. That's great. That's good news. But what about real life right now? Is it, is it just this sure nature of hope that gives us strength? Or is there something that's like feeding into us, something that's nourishing us right now to get us to, to, to be strengthened to wait? Yeah, sure, we can see our hope off in the future, but in between us and that is a winding and dangerous curve of life. How do we navigate that? We navigate it by the Spirit of God helping us in our weakness. That's what Paul says. We, have a, the way, we don't just have a hope, we have a helper. <laughs> As the confusing, often discouraging path of life progresses, we seek, we, we, we seek to pray and we, we cry out to God, you know. But often, in this state of in-between, we just don't know what to pray. We just have this sigh of the soul. We feel that there's a cry there, but we can't express it. Have you ever felt that? That you know there's a cry in you. There's something that you have to talk about or ask God about direction, wisdom, but you don't really know where to start. All you can do is just let out this sigh. And the good news is, is that's good enough. That God hears that. That's what he says, that the Spirit of God himself almost expresses our groanings to God the Father. What a beautiful reality. What a beautiful reality that the Spirit of, uh, of God in some weird way translates what's going on in us back to the Father. These inaudible or audible groanings of our spirit, the, sp the Holy Spirit takes with him and brings before God every sigh Directed to the Lord in our exacerbated condition, the Spirit takes up for, the, for us to the Father. And then not only that, but He Himself prays for us in His own groanings. That the Spirit of God Himself groans for us because he, he sees what's going on and He Himself intercedes for us. That's what Paul says in the text. And what's great there is what Paul says. That the Spirit of God in interceding for you, praise according to the will of God. That he knows exactly what to pray for. He's praying according to God's own will because he knows it, because he's God. And so you, you know, you're, you're lost over in the corner of the room in the fetal position, sighing and confused about the purpose of God in your life. But in the heavenly realm, the Spirit of God is praying on your behalf and praying exactly what God wants to do in your life. He's praying the right things, which can give us strength. Which can give us strength. We don't disengage from prayer ourselves because of that, but we have strong hope that even in the seasons of life, even in the suffering of life, what can give us strength is to know, 
that when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit does. And He's interceding for us. What rest that brings. What, what strength that can give us to wait. To know that we have a hope that is sure and true. That's going to come true at some point in the future. But also right now in real life, we have a helper. Who himself is praying for us according to God's own will. That gives us strength to endure this in-between. But thankfully, this, this in-between is going to end. That as Christians, we will not always be waiting. There is an end to our waiting. Look how Paul picks that up. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The will of God for every believer in Jesus Christ is that we would be set free from this exhausted condition and be revealed in glory. In glory, it says there that, 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 that those whom he justified, he also glorified. That again, he brings in this category of, of glory. That that's where our life is headed. And even that, that, that glory, that's the good that is in your life. That's what God is working your life toward. That's what verse 28 talks about. It's not saying that your life is going to be easy, but it is saying that your life is going somewhere. And that somewhere is glory. And of course, we, we, we taste that goodness in our life. You know, obviously God is good to us in this life. And he's, he's giving us almost little samples of that glory as we go and walk along this Christian path. But eventually, what, what, it, what it is, what it's promising is that God is bending the arc of your life to not, also, not always be easy, but to end with glory. That that's been his eternal plan for you the whole time. And this eternal plan is worked out in your real life, as Paul says there, that after uh, having predestined you before, he now calls you in real life. He now justifies you as he gives you faith. And then in some weird way, he's already glorified you as if it's already happened. That he's already given you an inheritance that, it, that, is already, that is already yours, that uh, like, like First Peter talks about, that is unfading and imperishable and undefiled. It's already there. What a rich end to our waiting. And this, this is how Christians make it through. This is how we make it through. That we see that our life is headed somewhere. That we don't just acknowledge the experience of our waiting, which is good. We need to acknowledge the experience of, of groaning and suffering. Too often we just throw platitudes and cliches at it. But platitudes and cliches, coffee mugs and hand towels are not enough to get you to make it through some of the suffering of real life. We need, we, we need to acknowledge that experience and we need to look at the strength to wait. That there is real hope that we have that gives us strength. We have a a real helper 
Spirit himself who gives us strength to, to move forward. But ultimately, the reason Christians are able to endure is because of where our life is headed. That's how we don't tap out. If we know where our life is headed, and if we believe that the sovereign, eternal plan of God has been to get us to this, this place of glory, then we can endure. We can endure and we can look forward to what God is going to bring us. This great hope of glory. And to close, I want to talk about that little word, glory. I've been, I've been using that a lot in this sermon. But let's actually define it. What, what is it? What do I mean when I say glory? That that's where the, the, the life of a Christian is headed. Listen, listen to what Colossians 1 says. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in us. He, he is the, the hope of glory. Or even later in Colossians 3, Paul will say that set, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So what I mean by that is that, that when Jesus comes again in the glory of his heavenly Father with the, the shattering voice of an archangel, you will appear with him in glory. That you will be with him and it will redeem, it will renew, it will restore every bit of suffering that you've experienced. This, this new category of being, no longer being under suffering, no longer being under futility, but being in this state of glory. Imagine that with me. Imagine that as the end of your life. That you, you come into the, the presence of God at whenever Jesus comes back or you die, you come into the presence of God and the, the lifelong weight of suffering and of sin, of trial and of temptation is weighing on you as you come in and it buckles your knees before the Father. And as you are laid low, having barely made it in there, having barely endured because life is so rough, as you are laid low, your, your ears are, are perked up as you hear the voice of someone singing. And you look up and you realize it's the Father. That, As Zephaniah 3 says, the Father sings his love over us. And as that song of the Father's delight and love for you washes over you, cascades over you, over your life, over your very existence. Every bit of struggle, every bit of suffering will not be worth comparing. That's, that's the glory that you're going to have, the song of, of love from your Father. Whereas in your, in your life, you have sighed through gritted teeth in that moment, you will breathe out. It was worth it. This suffering will be dust in the scales compared to the glorious song coming from our Father. And even more, what, what makes that day glorious, 
The reason that glory is used to describe that day is not just because we will be free from sin. You know, we talk a lot about that. Yes, certainly. It's not just because we will on that day experience vindication in every way from Satan who has sought to cast us down. And that will happen. That, that we will watch, as, as, uh, as Isaiah talks about, as the Lord carries out vindication against our great enemy. This enemy who is sought to oppress us and devour our faith all our lives long. We will see our vindication carried out against him. But that's not the only reason that day will be glorious. And it's not just because we're going to be free from this broken body. Ultimately, glory is the word for the end of your life, for your reality in the future because of the face that you are going to see. Jesus Christ. That day is glorious because of the unbroken gaze that we will then have with our Lord. This one who has loved us so well all of our lives. This one who believers treasure and long for. We will see his face. We will behold the glory of God shining shining forth in the face of Jesus Christ, like 2 Corinthians says. And it will make all of our suffering, every path, every trip that we've made on the way to that day, utterly worth it. Incomparable that glory will be to even the most painful suffering that we endure on the way. That's the future that you have, Christian. That's the end of your waiting. Is what the the early church fathers called the, the beatific vision, to see Jesus in his beauty, in his glory, and be made new. Listen to how the 19th century pastor Charles Spurgeon describes this. Now, I love this quote. This is actually the quote that, that God used when I was 18 to, to save me, to show me the beauty of Jesus and to, to help me to put my faith in him. Heaven is always heaven and unspeakably full of blessedness. But even heaven has its holidays. Even bliss has its overflowing. And on that day... When the springtide of the infinite ocean of joy shall have come, what a measureless flood of delight shall overflow the souls of all the glorified spirits as they perceive that the consummation of love's great design has come. The marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife, the church, has made herself ready. We know not yet, beloved, of what happiness we are capable If I may but see the King in His beauty, in the fullness of His joy, when He shall take by the right hand her for whom He shed His precious blood, and shall know the joy which was set before Him, for which He endured the cross, despising the shame, I will be blessed indeed. We know not yet, beloved, of what happiness we are capable of. We will know it on that day as we see the face of Jesus light up with joy to to take in His people and to be with us forever. We know not yet what happiness we are capable of. We'll know it on that day. And even as we wait for that day, that future, we look forward to it with, with joy. 
We, are, we, are, we acknowledge the experience of waiting, that we groan. We wish it wasn't the way it is right now. We have the strength to wait. We're strengthened by, this, by, the, by the sure nature of our hope, and we're strengthened by the Holy Spirit who's helping us along on this dangerous path. But above everything, what's really going to get us through in all of the suffering of life is to know and to look forward to the face that we will see. His face will be glorious, and it will make all the suffering we ever have or will or even fear experiencing not worth comparing. That's the future you have as a Christian. Would you lift your head? Would you lift your head, O sufferer, and remember the future that God is working your life toward and have hope? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the hope that you've given us in Jesus. God, I thank you that you right now are working our lives toward glory. And even when it doesn't feel like it, even when it doesn't feel like you're working together all things for our good, God, would you give us the strength to believe? Would you give us the faith to trust your to trust you, God, to trust your heart when we cannot see your hand and know that you will bring us to, to this, this place of, of being existing in glory, being, being with you, God. And that will make every bit of our suffering worth it. Would you convince us, oh God? Would you, Spirit, give us faith to believe that, to make it another day <laughs> on that hope? Father, we we trust you for it, and we look forward to that day when we will see Jesus Christ. We will see him in his beauty. God, convince us us that that will be worth it, no matter what we're going through. Give us that faith by your Spirit, Lord, and by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.